Here we are back for our second week in Jude, and get ready for it with uh, verses 5 through 16, if you have a Bible. James had a few road trip stories to open several of his sermons during the summer. Well, I also have a road trip story. Laura and I love to drive up the coast and stop at some of the ocean scenic points, such as Montana del Oro, Morro Rock, the boardwalk on the Moonstone Beach, on up to Ragged Point and Big Sur and regions beyond as well. But one thing that you cannot do now is go too far past Ragged Point because during the winter there was a rock slide that took out some of the road. And fortunately there are road barriers up, otherwise if you kept driving you'd drive off a cliff. Well, if you've been reading ahead this week in Jude, you may say, this looks to get a little difficult here. Verses four, or one to four, we're okay. But as we get to five, it looks like Russ is gonna drive off a cliff. What we have here are several illustrations grouped together by triplets, giving us a quick history of the Old Testament apostasy of many characters. Hence, the title for today is Cliff Notes of the History of Apostasy. The illustrations are short and to the point, and Jude's readers in his day would have been familiar with them, and so they didn't need a lot of explanation like we might. In verse 5, it says, Now I want to remind you that although you once fully knew it, the illustrations that are very familiar with them and with us will go quickly. But for some of us, some illustrations will need a little more explanation and may leave some of us scratching our heads. I agree, this has been a hard read. It's been wrestling. I've been wrestling with it for quite a while. But remember in 2 Timothy 3, 5, uh, 16 and 17, it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So let's turn to the letter next to, to the last book of the Bible. If you're visiting today with us, welcome to Grace. And you may find a Bible in the pew rack in front of you, or you can read it on the screen as well. Hear the word of the Lord. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling he has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and their surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, 
was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept away by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Wow. <laughs> For review, when Jude started to write the letter of our common salvation in Christ, he reminded his readers that they are called, beloved, and kept in Christ. He prayed in verse 2 that mercy and peace and love would be on them. Then he unloaded an expose of apostasy, exhorting his readers to contend for the faith. Because God led Jude to change his message, today we have the letter that demonstrates clearly that the spiritual battle for the biblical truth demands our effort. Chuck Swindoll said in his commentary on Jude, apostates are people who willingly and deliberately defect from the faith although they once appeared to agree with the church on the doctrines of Christianity, truth be told, they never really trusted Christ for eternal salvation. With arrogance and defiance in their hearts, apostates purposely oppose the central teachings of the Christian faith and at the same time plant seeds of doubt, division, dissension among believers. Believers in Christ who study the scriptures and fellowship in a church already have the infallible sources of true knowledge and wisdom. Knowing this, Jude provided four essential reasons to contend for the faith. One of those reasons must contend for the faith because the doom of the apostles, or doom of the apostates, is certain. Preventing further damage and rescuing their victims is therefore vital for us. To back up this claim of doom, Doom appeals to three examples from the Old Testament. And the first example to this event recorded in Numbers 13 and 14, the people of Israel, having experienced the exodus of Moses, or under Moses, from Egypt. And you will notice in verse 5 that Jesus is the one who brought them out. But you say, Jesus? 
Doesn't he show up at Christmas time? Well, yes. But I will remind you that the second person of the Trinity shows up all throughout the Old Testament. He showed up in the beginning as part of the Godhead. He showed up at creation. And he shows up sometimes mysteriously and sometimes he is referred to as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. But here he is in, as they're exiting from Egypt. So they came to the edge of the promised land that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants. Abraham, as we read, read in the call to worship this morning, by faith he obeyed God. His descendants, though, came here and they stopped. They did not enter the promised land because of unbelief. They didn't believe that they could take the land. They sent out some spies on a reconnaissance mission in obedience to God. But when they saw the grim odds and the majority of the spies, all except Caleb and Joshua, uh, said that we cannot take it. We cannot go into the land. And because of their unbelief manifested in disobedience, the Lord judged that generation in the wilderness and they did not enter the land. They faced certain doom. These people were in the crowd. They were circumcised Jews, but they weren't circumcised in their hearts. Their hearts were full of unbelief. They were rebels. They rebelled against God's rule. They doubted God's promises. They were reluctant to believe his promises. And so God determines that that should be their end. The warning of false teachers in Jude's day is obvious. Those who lack genuine faith will not go unpunished. Unbelief will keep you from Christ. Unbelief will keep you from heaven. That's the point that he's trying to make. And I will remind you that being part of the visible people of God is no guarantee of eternal security unless it is combined with living personal faith in Jesus Christ. The second example pertains to fallen angels whom God judged. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. I think this one needs a little clarification here. There are at least a couple views on what he is talking about. One might be that this refers to the point in eternity past when Satan rebelled against God and took a third of the angels with him from heaven. But I don't see this being the case here for at least one reason. Not all the demons are kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment day, the great day. But here it says that they are. I read in 1 Peter 5.8 that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's not chained right now. He will be later, but he isn't now. But some demons are. What I believe is, and there are good pastors and good theologians that believe on both sides, some with the previous view, and some will agree with me that this likely explains the events of the background of Genesis 6. When fallen angels somehow entered the physical realm and cohabited with women on earth. The result of this exceptionally immoral 
and unnatural union was a race of mighty men called Nephilim. Genesis 6, 1-4 says, When men began to multiply on the face of the land, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took their wives and they took for their wives any they chose. Then God said, My spirit shall not abide with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters, and they bore the children to them, they were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The effect of this widespread, rampant, worldwide wickedness is shown in Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The warning is again clear to the immoral false teachers in Jude's day. Those who engage in such acts will be severely judged. Remember what happened to the people who were wandering in the wilderness. And remember what happened to the angels who used their privileged position as a springboard for perverse activity. The third example takes us to the horrific events in Sodom and Gomorrah recorded in Genesis 19. According to Genesis 18:20, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah was indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. God didn't wink at their sexual immorality. He condemned them to destruction. God destroyed these cities because of both homosexual and heterosexual sin. As such, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah became an archetype and foreshadowed the judgment of eternal fire that awaited unsaved apostates who also engaged in such wickedness. The immoral false teachers of Jude's day were indulging in this kind of gross immorality and were thus in the line for the same punishment. Because of such apostasy that brings doom, believers must strive against these false doctrines and wicked lifestyles. And unbelievers who are led astray by such false teachers will lose the opportunity to hear the truth and to be genuinely saved both from the disastrous lifestyle and also from eternal judgment. But then we turn to false teachers who blaspheme. Another reason that believers contend for the faith is because of the tongues of the apostates who are blasphemous in Jude 8 through 10. Apostates can do great damage to new believers as well as unbelievers by their sneering cynicism and irreverence toward things that are sacred. They get their ideas from God's revelation, but from, they don't get their ideas from God's revelation, but from their own dreaming, imaginations from which they become their own authority over what's right and true. The result is reviling and blaspheming of spiritual things. You've got to give Jude a 10 out of 10 for absolute clarity here. He's not pulling any punches. There's no way in which he's softening the blow. They're dreamers and they defile the flesh. 
they despise authority, and they speak evil. They might say something like, well, we don't pay much attention to the Bible. We have visions. We have dreams. You don't want to go to somebody who just says, well, let's see what the Bible says about it. No, no, you want to come to somebody like us who have the direct source. That's what they'll tell you. We have fresh revelation. Or here's a new twist on it. Or here's what it really means. And I know you have your Bible, and I know you know a bit about it. But why don't you come to my study, and I'll tell you what it really means. I don't know if you've heard this before, but I have. As a young Christian, somebody said some of those same things to me, and it about rocked my faith because I had to go back and question some things. Fortunately, I turned to the Bible to see what God had to say. So you have this picture, don't you? Their dreams are fantasies, showing utter contempt for authority, refusing to learn from history, choosing instead to rewrite it according to their dreams. In Jude 9, he illustrates the extreme folly of the apostates, blaspheming those blasphemies through an episode recorded in an apocryphal book that would have been familiar to his audience. This book was known as the Assumption of Moses or the Testament of Moses. And what he's actually doing here, he's quoting from Jewish material from a particular story about the Assumption of Moses, which ran, if you like, alongside the unfolding of the canon of Scripture. And so he's able to refer to it in a way in which the people could say, yeah, I get what he means. You can read about the Assumption of Moses in Deuteronomy 34. Nobody knows to this day where Moses' body is buried. There's a real kind of mysterious little bit to the departure of Moses when you read at the end of Deuteronomy. The argument in the Assumption of Moses, though, was that Moses was being allowed into heaven. And the devil is saying, Moses should not be allowed into heaven, presumably because he, he could claim, well, Moses, Moses murdered that Egyptian guy, remember? And therefore, I don't think he should be allowed into heaven. But Michael refuses to side with the devil, and he defers to the Almighty God as the lawgiver and the judge. He doesn't take authority upon himself to say, well, I'll decide who goes into heaven, including Moses, because I am the archangel, Michael, and I am a significant guy. No, because he recognized that not even him as the archangel can declare Moses innocent. Not even Michael can defer the accusations or remove the accusations of the law. He simply didn't dare to because he recognizes that only the sovereign, almighty, gracious God can do that. And he is the God of mercy as well as the God of judgment. Michael said, the Lord rebuke you and left the judgment to God. Now notice in verse 10, because it's a key, but these people, so he's pointing out a big contrast, these people here, if the archangel Michael didn't presume to overstep the bounds of authority, 
Who in the world are these people that think that they can overstep their own authority? Those blaspheming apostates revile the things that they do not understand, that is, spiritual things. But what they are familiar with, though, is natural things of the flesh. They indulge to the point of self-destruction. In other words, they live by sight and not by faith. Surely, for some reasons, more reasons than I recognize, we are studying Jude right now. If ever there was an expression of the reality of what happens to a society, to a life, to a family, to an individual that turns its back on the truth of the living God, here it is in the pages of Jude, written for us in Scripture as they recklessly ride downward toward humanism, apostates consider themselves masters of their own bodies to do with them as they please. So the result of the rejecting of God, his perfect plan, leaves them in the realm of irrationality. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. It's not uncommon for people that I've heard recently to say, where did common sense go? Where did basic biology go? Where did objective truth go? Nowadays, truth is relative, it seems to many people. It's subjective. Now, a third reason believers should contend for the faith is because the religion of apostates is empty. It's not as though they were a valid alternative, but wrong in just a few points, but close enough. Instead, they had nothing to offer. The errors of the apostates were manifold, as shown by further comparisons in the negative figures from the past. Cain, for one, offered a sacrifice that went against God's requirements for the kind of offering that God desired by doing things his own way and presenting an offering from the fruit of his labors rather than from an animal sacrifice. Cain's offering did not meet God's approval. What Cain offered had the outside appearance of piety, but it lacked substance of, of sincere faith and obedience. If we're going to understand what was going on with Cain, we need to realize that he had rejected the very idea of his accountability before the holy God. When it came to the sacrifice, he wanted to do it his own way. Then we move on to Balaam. He was motivated by greed. Balaam is an interesting character. He's the one whose donkey talked to him. And without even thinking about it, he talked back to his donkey and didn't even question it. But the apostates also rushed in to Balaam's error, who set out to sell his prophecies against Israel to the Moabites until the Lord stopped him. Even though the Lord tried to tell him he still went off on his own way. Balaam lured the men of Israel into sexual immorality and the worship of idols. So Balaam served as an Old Testament parallel of the apostates 
who not only twisted doctrine until it broke, but also deceived people into sin. Balaam was pre prevented from cursing the people, which he wanted to do, but he managed somehow or other to make it work so that he could get Moab's king to seduce them in sexual adultery. And don't for a moment imagine that the word error there might be regarded as just a little slip. You know, Balaam just made a little mistake. No, it's not a casual mistake he made. It was deliberate. It was deceitful. It was objective. It was to bring the downfall of the people of God. That's what he wanted to do. And Judah's saying, when these characters emerge, you should know that it's their objective. Another character in the Old Testament was Korah. He and his fellow rebels, he was a Levite who led a mutiny against the legitimate leadership of Moses and Aaron. In his arrogance, Korah presumed that he could approach God on his own terms. He wanted to do it his own way. In his arrogance, or because of his presumptuous defiance, God caused the earth to open up and swallow him and his followers. Remember God said to the people around him, get away. No, no, get a little further away. And then the ground opened up and swallowed him. Actually, in Korah's rebellion, the people who perished are the people that we just read about in the Old Testament. But he describes the end of these characters in the past tense as if it's also that they have gone down that these false teachers in Jude have gone down in the rebellion with Korah. In other words, it's a downward spiral. In verses 5 through 11, Jude summoned a long roster of Old Testament and extra-biblical witnesses to testify against the wickedness of the apostates. In 12 and 13, he unleashes a vivid uh, illustration of images to bolster his argument. The false teachers showed up for the church's love feast as if they were genuine members of the community, of the faithful, but in reality, they were like hidden reefs that lurked just beneath the surface, ready to shipwreck other people's faiths. They were eager to fill the bodies of their they were eager to fill their bellies from the pantries of the church, but they were unwilling to fulfill their obligations to the people of the church. They cared nothing about others, only themselves. In Ezekiel 34.2, it says, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? Their emptiness is underscored when Jude uses illustrations from nature and says the apostates were like clouds without water, nothing real to offer a thirsting soul. Along the same lines, the heretics were like fruitless and rotless or rootless trees, bearing no marks of holiness in their lives, and in fact removed the life-nourishing ministry of the church. In this sense, they were doubly dead, and the picture of being twice dead is a graphic picture 
It's what the Bible talks about in Revelation, that on the judgment day, those who have been fruitless, those who have been deceptive, those who have undermined all that God desired, who have physically died, will experience a second death in the final irrevocable separation from God who made us to know him, to love him, and to follow him. Jude illustrates their destructive nature by comparing them to foaming waves of the sea. He's combining a metaphor of physical and moral here. So the picture is understandable. If you've ever seen or stood on the shore and you've seen the waves crashing in, like Laura and I have along the coast as we've taken rides up the coast, someone might say to you, don't get too close because that stuff could spray all over you and there's no saying what it might bring. A lot of crashing, entirely unpredictable, and leaving behind a mess to clean up. That's the picture. And finally, their lives are like wandering stars which appear for a time but fail at providing guidance. Instead, they lead into darkness of destruction. Any who count them count on them for direction. These false teachers can only lead you astray. Now after these illustrations from nature, Jude caps it off with a description of the apostles' judgment with a quote from a popular apocryphal book. No, it is not part of the canon, as some would like to say from other uh, faiths, but to illustrate Jude drew from a variety of uninspired sources such as this one and such as the Assumption of Moses. It, what was the content of uh, the book of Enoch that caught Jude's attention and led him to apply it to the Acts of the Apostates? The passage quoted emphasized that the absolute certainty of the judgment of the ungodly this quote serves to cap off and sum up the preceding discussion. Think of it as Jude's closing argument as he presents the final case to his readers. Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, to convict all the ungodly to, of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. How can you not notice the repeated word there, ungodly? It's the same term used in Romans 1.18, where Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. One day, Christ will come with an entourage of angelic warriors and a parade of glorified saints to make war against the ungodly and to vanquish them. None will escape the judgment. They will both be judged for their ungodly deeds and the words that they used for blasphemy that they spoke when they rejected their only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, Jude lays into the apostates with a litany of vices that clothe the, the, the false teachers. Grumbling, fault-finding, lusting, boasting, and flattering. Because of their conscience, their willing, stubborn rebellion, God will punish them one day. In closing, what I say is 
besides don't be an apostate or don't follow them that are. Jude wanted to instill in his audience a sense of righteous anger against the apostates. But if we're not careful, righteous indignation can boil over into uncontrolled contention on our part. We must prepare ourselves, though, to stand up for the truth and rely on the Holy Spirit to help us exercise control. There is no question here that this woe and this warning is tough. It was tough to study this week. And it's important, and I keep reminding myself, that Jude, the servant of the Lord Jesus, is addressing the matter in the awareness that God wants his people, God wants his people to be the opposite of these things. He wants the shepherds of the church to be totally unlike these pictures. I'll take six pictures that we just looked at in verses 12 and 13. For example, the negative and then follow it up with a positive response. They were hidden wreaths, but yet there's the light of the world. He is our beacon to warn of hidden wreaths. We should be life preservers or life rafts to be merciful to those whom have been shipwrecked spiritually and physically by these hidden reefs. Greedy shepherds feeding themselves, but yet we have a good shepherd who is the bread of life. We should bring the bread of life to others for their nourishment. Then clouds without rain, but the one who made the clouds gives living water. We should give living water to others who are in need. Wild waves of the sea. Jesus calms the sea. We should be a calming influence to those around us. Fruitless trees. Well, Jesus is the vine that produces fruit in us and through us. Show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And there's wandering stars, but there's a fixed point as well. The star of Bethlehem led wise men to Jesus. And we should let our light shine before others that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Don't go down the path of apostasy Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus is the same today and yesterday and forever. Navigate by him who is the light of the world. Psalm 18.30 says, For as God, his perfect way, the Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. Some of you are here this morning, and if you're honest, you're wandering stars or you're following wandering stars. Or you may have just wandered in here as well, wondering what this is about. We have nothing to offer here except the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Why don't you turn to him? Let's pray together.
Father, we bow down before you. We come as beggars to the food of your word. We come as scratching the surface of the immensity of what you have left to us in the Bible. We pray that you will help us to get the big story here, the warning that sounds out, the appeal that is made to contend for the faith, the reminder that the ground of our salvation is in the work of Christ, and the evidence that we are in, that we are in Christ is that we continue to heed the warnings and to continue to trust your promises, the very means that you have chosen to use in order to bring us safely to glory. So accomplish your purpose in us and through us, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.